What is life? It's nothing. Smoke. Here for a moment, gone in an instant. We all saw it and now smoke. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That, that word literally means smoke or vapor or breath. It's nothing. Just like smoke. Here and gone and who can grasp onto it? Meaning. Talk about meaning. We long for meaning. We live as if there is meaning. You might as well chase after the wind. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Is anything worth anything? That's the question, isn't it? I recently saw an article in Christianity Today. It's called The Gospel of Draper and Gatsby. Uh, and it compared these, these two characters. And it's been a long time since I've read The Great Gatsby. I don't know if you've ever seen the television show Mad Men, but it, it showed how these two characters both come from incredibly dark and hidden past. Both have become absolutely the epitome of the self-made man. That they're rich and powerful and successful and attractive, and both are absolutely miserable. And the article states, it says, we love this kind of thing, the person who comes from nothing, but what's it like to be on the other end? What happens if you spend your existence making yourself only to look at your life and realize that you hate everything about it, everyone in it, that the position you're in embodies everything you hate? Do you want to be the self you made? Because if you take one hard look at Jay Gatsby or Don Draper, you know instantly that they would cry out right with the words of Ecclesiastes, I hated life, it says. Because what is done unto the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Is anything worth anything? You don't have to be them to ask that question either. In fact, just uh, recently, maybe about a year or so ago, I had, this, I had this kind of startling realization that for the first time in my life, things had really stopped moving. Do you, do you know what I mean? Let me, let me explain that a little bit. You know, when you're, when you're young, or even really for probably the first third, maybe the first half of your life, you're always headed in some direction, right? There's always that next thing. Okay, when you're a kid, it's school, and then it's becoming a teenager, getting your license, graduation. For me, it was in college and marriage and seminary, and then starting my first real job here at, at Christ Community, and then child number one and child number two, and then I sort of realized, well, I guess that's it. Just, just kind of more of the same at this point. And I had to ask myself, am I, am I, am I okay with that? And will I be okay with that in 10 years, in 30 years, and on my deathbed, when I look back, am I going to be okay with that? Too young for a midlife crisis, aren't I? I mean, surely. And actually, though, this wasn't a crisis for me. It was really more of a moment of self-reflection and observation, because I'm, I'm happy where I am. I like my family and my situation, my job, and I'm content in that. But still, I had to ask myself and wrestle with the question, is anything worth anything? I mean, here, here I am, 
This is what it means to be Nathan, I guess. Is it, is it worth it? Do you ever feel that way? You live and breathe and work and do laundry, and, and then you have the same argument, and you deal with the same temptations, and you see basically the same news stories over and over again, and then you go to bed, and you get up, and you do it again. You maybe accomplish something here and there, and you, know, you squeeze a few smiles out along the way, you make a few cents, and then you die. <laughs> and then your children live and breathe and work and do laundry and on and on and on and on and on and on for thousands of years. This endless cycle. Is anything worth anything? You know, we're not the first people to ask that question. And I seriously doubt we'll be the last. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to wrestling with that question. This little tiny, often forgotten book right in the middle of the wisdom literature called Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes reads a bit like the bleak pessimism of a very crotchety but rather wise old man reflecting back on his life. As he looks back, it's not with a grin, moment of nostalgia, it's with a groan. Many believe King Solomon wrote this book. The book doesn't actually use his name. At the very least, it was probably written from Solomon's perspective. It seems like that is what's going on here. But the author refers to himself over and over again as the preacher. So that's that's what we're going to call him, the preacher. And so this wise preacher is is writing at the end of his life, and he's a man who had absolutely everything. And at the end of his life, he begins pondering, what is it all for? And so he writes down for his children and for his grandchildren and for us his reflections. So imagine him sitting there in his rocking chair, crotchety and haggard and old, right? Reflecting back, pondering aloud, is anything worth anything? And over and over again, in this little book, he, he says it pretty clearly, life under the sun is vanity. That's kind of the basic thing over and over and over. In fact, that little phrase, under the sun, it occurs 29 times in this little tiny book. Simply when he says it, it means just life on planet earth, life in this broken place that we call home. And he starts off in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word vanity occurs 37 times in 12 chapters. It's kind of a hard word, though, to understand. It's even a hard word for the translators to to try to translate out of the the Hebrew language. Uh, ESV has vanity. NIV has meaningless. Uh, The message has smoke. Um, It's the Hebrew word hebel, which literally means vapor or smoke or breath. It's It's the air that just sort of comes out of your mouth and is quickly gone. That's it. Here and gone and who can grasp it? It's actually the same Hebrew word that is used for Abel. Maybe you've heard of heard of him, Cain and Abel, the first kids of Adam and Eve. Abel is murdered by his brother Cain. 
Abel's was the first meaningless life and death. So the preacher's saying everything, it's just, it's all like Abel. Futile and fleeting, here and gone before we even notice it. Why is it all vanity? Well, he tells us, and and these first 11 verses really make up the prologue, just kind of his opening statements of of why things are, are so bleak for him. Let me just summarize. He basically says, because nothing, nothing ever happens. It's always the same thing over and over. You live and you work and then you die. The next generation takes over. The wind never stops blowing. The oceans never fill up. And the same miserable things happen over and over and over again. Verse 11, he kind of concludes the the prologue. Let me read it from the message. Here's what it says in verse 11. Nobody remembers what happened yesterday. And the things that will happen tomorrow, nobody will remember them either. Don't count on being remembered. And the preacher starts getting specific. Kind of goes on, he begins this section where basically he's saying, even everything I've tried to give my life meaning has left me meaningless. Everything I've looked to, to to fill myself up, it's all left me absolutely empty. Wisdom, he says, pleasure, success, wealth, all will leave you empty. Wisdom will leave you empty, he says. I mean, you don't really expect the Bible to say that, right? About, About wisdom, and yet, according to the preacher, both high school dropouts and PhDs all die. So he's like, so what? What's the big deal? I mean, who, who really cares? And he says in, in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And here's what he found. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And then in verse 18, he says, for in much wisdom is much vexation or frustration and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Sure, wisdom is better than folly. I mean, he'll concede that. But don't count on it. Wisdom will leave you empty. I, mean, I can remember uh, pretty clearly coming out of college thinking how smart I was. You know, some of you probably had that experience when you left college. And you know, most of my life, really, to that point, that was, that was a part of my identity, right? My, my intellect, my ability to get good grades or do a good test or write a good paper. And, you know, I thought that was part of the definition of what it meant to be me. Um, about two seconds after I got to seminary, to graduate school, I just quickly realized how terribly, terribly average I was, honestly. <laughs> that, that there were so many people, so much not just a little bit, like so much smarter than I was. And the reality is, if your intellect is, which often in our culture, right, if that's a place in which you sort of run to for your identity, for your self-assurance, here's the hard part about that, which the preacher sort of, sort of points out. It's, if you're smart enough to think that that's your worth, you're also smart enough to realize how little you know, right? And you're smart enough to realize that there are so many people who know so much more than you do. Intellect, education, wisdom, your intellect, it will leave you empty. 
he says. And they can't save you anyway. What about pleasure? Might as well give that a try, right? I mean, that, that's certainly an area in which we as a culture, we build our lives upon. Everything is about the, the next big experience. I mean, how often have you run to laughter or food or drink or sex or leisure to, to tell you that your life is worth living? Right? Way more times than I'd care to admit. But the preacher, he tried it all. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, all this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Skip to verse 8. As much sex as he wanted. He says, many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. And then verse 10, he says, whatever my eyes desired, anything he wanted, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. But verse 11, all was vanity. I was striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Pleasure will leave you empty. You know, the morning after you, you wake up and you, last night you had a little, maybe too much to drink or uh, that, that regret following those really poor choices on the internet. You know, what, what were you thinking, clicking there? Um, or, or even that, that last trip through the buffet line, right? When, when the, the bloating and the nausea has already begun, but for, for that, we laugh at that one, but for that in every one of those areas of pleasure, we go back over and over and over again just trying to squeeze out a little bit more pleasure. But he says it's empty. And then you die. But what about success? Success, that's where he goes next. What about work and achievement? And, and work is a good thing, right? We, we are people who, who work, we're created to work. But is it your identity? Is it your source of meaning? Don't hold your breath. Because the preacher tried that too, and he did some pretty incredible things. Back in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Imagine this incredible garden in the midst of the you know, desert world of the Mediterranean. Meaningless, he says. Just meaningless. And in fact, he goes even further. He says, basically, you know, I, actually, I hate it. I hate it because all that's left for me now is to leave all of my creations, all of my achievements to the idiots who will follow after me, and they're just going to mess it up. Yeah, that, that's what he says, right? It's just, I'm going to be dead, and this is going to be theirs, and they're going to wreck it. It's the way it's going to happen. And he knows it. So yeah, you know, work your heart out course, build, achieve. All, I mean, work is, is a good thing, right? But with one, with every taste of success, we're left so hungry for more. Whatever it is, maybe it's, it's work, maybe it's your home, your, your family, your own, your, your own business, whatever it is for you. 
It's all going to be gone soon enough. Every bit of it. And, and so will you. So not success. Success will leave you, will leave you empty. It's kind of fun chasing after the wind, isn't it? Well, what about money? Surely that will do the trick. That's where, that's where he turns next. It's got to be money. It's got to be wealth. Because with that, I mean, you can, you can buy stuff and you can do stuff and, and all of this. Money has got to be the answer. But he says, no, it's not that either. Because again, you're still going to die, is what he says. And you're, you're going to leave it to the people who follow after you. And what good is it going to do you then? And what, frankly, what is it good is it going to do them then to inherit all this wealth? He says it's just meaningless. It's pointless. And he had everything. And he said that back in in verse 7, chapter 2. He said, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. In chapter 5, if we were to skip ahead, he he hits on this, this topic of wealth pretty hard. He says, he who loves money will never be satisfied, will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. He goes on, he says, besides, the more money you have, the more bills you have to pay. And then he makes this really interesting observation. I've never really thought about it before, but he, he says that, you know, the people with just enough money, they're the ones who are able to get a good night's sleep. The people who are really poor or really rich, their riches keep them awake. That, most of us probably fit into that category because there's just so much to do with it and so much to care about and to to worry about and in the end it's all just smoke he says is anything worth anything so nathan let me get this straight so far the message is is basically life is empty Um, And everything that we run to to give ourselves meaning pretty much stinks, and then you die. Is that what Ecclesiastes is all about? Yeah, pretty much, actually. That's that's about it, right? I mean, anybody else need a Prozac? Okay, I mean, we're going to be passing them out of the door on the way to your lunch buffet, okay, afterwards. (laughs) Meaningless, empty, vanity, smoke. That's life under the sun, kids. So says the preacher. So what's the point of staying alive? I mean, it all just seems so nihilistic, doesn't it? But we're not done yet. Life under the sun is meaningless. The preacher goes on and on about that. Unless. Unless there's someone over the sun... That, that phrase, he, again, he uses it 29 times, under the sun. It implies that there's got to be something over the sun. Something more. Something unseen. Something real. Friends, life is meaningless. Unless God is real. Because without God, nothing lasts. I mean, think about it. Without God, there is no justice. Without God, words like beauty and love are absolutely incoherent. Without God, we are dust. Our actions are dust. And our world will soon be dust. Ask any atheist. 
be truly committed to the implications of their faith, and they will tell you life ultimately is meaningless. Unless. The only refuge in a meaningless world, life under the sun is a God over the sun. Because we don't, we don't understand the complexities of time or the injustices around us so the futility of our experiences or the inevitability of death, it's this endless cycle on and on and on. And while this could lead us to despair, as it has for many, it could also lead us where it leads the preacher. For the end of Ecclesiastes, the very last two verses, we find this glimmer of hope in the midst of the smoke. While, while everything around us at times feels meaningless, chapter 12, 13, and 14, here it is. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, for the preacher, God is real and he is watching. And just like that, there's meaning in the meaninglessness. It's not just this endless cycle of living and dying. There is a God who sees all and knows all. There's one to whom we must give an account. Fear God and keep his commands. Every deed of yours and mine will be judged, no matter how secret. On the one hand, that ought to be sobering, right? That God sees us when we abuse his gifts, things like pleasure and wealth and wisdom and success. He sees that and he will judge. It's a sobering reality for every one of us. But this isn't just sobering. I think it's invigorating. God sees. I mean, do you see how that infuses meaning even into the most mundane life? This is is good news. Everything under the sun matters because the God over the sun is always watching you. One, One commentator writes, He says, Ecclesiastes is an agonizing struggle of an honest man wrestling with his absurd existence. And out of that struggle, exhorting his son to fear God, he is saying, my eyes see that life is vanity, but my heart knows that God is wise, just, and good. On the the one hand, life is absolutely absurd without God. And and frankly, even with him, we will still struggle, won't we, with the seeming randomness of the human experience. But with God, even in the absurdity, there is infinite significance. You know, ever ever since I I got, you know, really serious about my faith as a a senior in high school, I've been drawn to this, this little strange book, Ecclesiastes. And I'm not, I'm not really entirely sure why. It might, maybe just because it kind of fits my personality, right? If those of you who know me well, I tend to have a kind of curmudgeonly way of viewing the world. I look at life, and I look at injustice, and I look at the unceasing, unfulfilled longings of my heart. And I think, what is it all for? And so I love the, the preacher because he doesn't hold back. 
I mean, this, this guy, right, he is so honest. And maybe if, if you've not really ever considered faith, or maybe you consider yourself a bit of a, a skeptic or a cynic, kind of honestly like I do, I'd encourage you to maybe just read Ecclesiastes. Let his cynicism confront your own. And, and see what happens. Because he doesn't, he, doesn't he doesn't view the world through rose-colored glasses. He asks questions that frankly many of us are afraid to ask. There's no rose-colored glasses for him. He tells it as it is. Life is an unceasing pain in the neck, and the finish line is the grave. And yet, and yet he comes to the conclusion that with God it's still worth it. And if that's true, if this, this preacher, if he's sitting there in his rocking chair, how would he tell us to live? What did he tell his children and his grandchildren? Well, I think he'd tell us three things. And these three things come up over and over again in this book. First, he'd say, don't ask empty things to fill you up. I think that's what he'd say first. Life is empty enough without trying to fill it with empty things. He tried it all, Remember? Wisdom, pleasure, success, wealth. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's something else for you. Maybe it's not something, something in his list. But ask yourself, where am I most likely to look to know that my life matters? What are the things that I'm most likely to run to to know that my life is worth living? Family, it's a good thing. Work, the weekend. Learn from this crotchety old man. Don't ask empty things to fill you up. For example, um, I, I love coffee. Probably a little, bit, a little bit too much. But I, I mean, in the morning, it's one of my favorite things, right? To sit with a, a steaming cup of coffee. And almost on a daily basis, this happens to me. Uh, maybe it's happened to you. I, I finish my coffee before I realize that I finished it. Is this, you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, I'm working away or doing something, and then I go back to my mug, and I'm expecting hot, steaming, fresh nectar of the gods. And I, and I pull it up and, and, you know, to put it to my lips and back, 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 back. Empty. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible experience, Right? You, you can't ask empty things to fill. It doesn't matter how hard I try to get coffee out of an empty coffee mug. It cannot deliver. The same is true with all the things that we run to. So many of them are really good things as, as well. They're just not ultimate things. Don't ask the things in your life to give you your meaning. Don't ask them to fill you up. And once we stop asking them to give us what only God can give us, the preacher then, he, he tells us the second thing. He says, basically, in the midst of a world that at times feels meaningless, enjoy what you can under the sun. Enjoy what you can. That's in the Bible. Yeah, even for this grumpy old man. Yes, life stinks sometimes, and, and it is mostly impossible to, to figure out. And yet, it's like the, the preacher is, is saying there, he's like, you know, don't ask those things to, to fill you up. I mean, don't be an idiot about it, but you might as well enjoy them, right? 
eat, drink, and be merry. Where do you think that phrase comes from? It's from Ecclesiastes. Chapter 2, verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. He says that same thing, basically. Again in chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 11. One, One scholar writes, The preacher spends a great deal of time commenting on the twisted realities of a fallen world. But this does not blind him to the beauty of the world God created or cause him to despise God's good gifts of human relationships, food, drink, and satisfying labor. These are to be received humbly and enjoyed fully as blessings from God. Life gives you a few moments. Enjoy what God gives. Now is the moment to enjoy life whenever you can. Again, quoting Waltke, he says, When pleasure is pursued as an end in itself, it leads, as the preacher painfully learned, to dissatisfaction and emptiness, but when accepted as a gift from God and used responsibly in the fear of God, there is nothing better under the sun. You know, I I did something working on this sermon that I've, I've never done before while, while working on a sermon. I, I took two weeks off right in the middle. Uh, and, and so before we left on, on vacation, I did all of my study and time in the text and all that, and even most of my writing. And then we got back a couple days ago and kind of you know, dusted it off and made a few tweaks, and, and here we are. I've never done that before, but I, I can't tell you how valuable that was as a pre- precursor to two weeks of rest and delight with my family. To have this book so ingrained, I mean, just even how many times I had to to read it and to to immerse myself in it. Because on on the one hand, it forced me to remind myself and and my my poor family uh, over and over and over again, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Right? Enjoy it. These are, these are God's gifts. Take these moments. Love the time with family and, and food and rest and the, the sights you're able to see, the things you're able to do. Enjoy them. These are gifts from God. Enjoy them. So on the one hand, I, I felt an incredible freedom to enjoy God's gifts because of Ecclesiastes. But on the other hand, I kept reminding myself and my poor family, it's meaningless. It's all meaningless. Nathan, don't for a moment ask these things to fill you up. Don't ask them to tell you that your life is worth living. Don't ask them to tell you that that this this is it, that these are the moments that that make it all worthwhile. Don't don't do that. Ultimately, if I do that, then they're meaningless. And it ends in despair. So on the one hand, I I, I felt this, this permission, this freedom to enjoy God's gifts. And on the other hand, I felt caution to my soul that so quickly wanders, my heart that so eagerly grabs on to these little things and says, this is what life is about. I can't tell you how valuable that was for me. And not just, not just before vacation, but just in general, and I hope that all of begin to grasp what does it look like to hold these two things in tension, to enjoy God's gifts. Man, he, he has been so gracious to us, but also to, to be warned be careful 
How do we do that? Well, I think he shows us in chapter 11, verse 9. This really leads us to the third thing. Chapter 11, verse 9, he says, Rejoice, O young man or young woman, in your youth. And he's like, ah, kids. I mean, that's kind kind of what he's doing there. Enjoy it. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. Have a good time, he's saying. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. It all brings us back. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The third thing he would tell us, I think, is live before the God who sees. God is watching. That's that's the only way we can keep these these things in balance, right? These desires that we have, and yet the meaninglessness that, that life can so often be, to know that God is watching you every secret thing, and he will judge. Enjoy his gifts, but do not abuse them. Because if you abuse them, you end in despair. Because they're never going to be the fulfillment of all that you hope for and long for out of life. They will always end up leaving you disappointed and wanting more. Every time. Do you live before his eyes? I mean, that doesn't really have any choice, right? But do you consciously recognize that with every action, every hidden thought, every bit of your life, God is watching And does that thought give you terror or joy? Fear is appropriate, right? And and this should be a sober warning to every one of us to to fight against our sin and to pursue holiness. God's watching. But I really believe it should also be a source of great joy. It's invigorating. God is watching. The only one who fills you up and if, and if that is true, that means there is nothing mundane in the entire universe. That there, there's no such thing as secular. I hate that word. Everything is sacred because the God who made us is always watching everything. The God over the sun sees everything under the sun. And therefore there is meaning. And you know, the only way the preacher could look at God's watchful eyes and still respond with even a tiny bit of joy is if he knew the constant refrain of the Old Testament. That the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Because he knew and we know, with God watching us, we know our guilt. We know our shortcomings. The only way before we can live before God who sees is to know that he's gracious. The reality is we know something even more than the preacher, don't we? Something better. We know the embodiment of gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. If we don't just have a God over the sun who sees, our God joined us here under the sun so that he could provide a way to, to rescue us. And that, that means that our, our God knows He felt the paradoxes of this fallen world. He experienced the the deep sense of chaos and injustice. He he knew the smoke of our frail and fragmented lives. He even experienced the meaninglessness of death. The words of the preacher, they all build the inevitability of our deaths. The Apostle Paul, writing in the New Testament, he says, if Christ has not been raised, 
and our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. It's empty. Life really is just meaningless, but, he says, if Jesus actually did defeat death, if he did conquer the grave, he says, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your life, your everything is not in vain. For in Christ we will live forever. And through faith in him, even at this moment, if you trust in, in Jesus, even now as God looks down upon you, seeing every part of you, and yet in Christ a big smile lights up across his face. Because in Jesus you are his son or daughter. And he loves you and he accepts you and longs to, warts and all. And there is a reason to live and not just live, but live started off this morning with smoke um, and Gatsby and, and Draper. Self-made men, like the preacher, they had everything. They're miserable. The preacher also had everything, and yet he holds on to the tiniest bit of hope. Why? Well, he knew the eyes of a loving God were upon him. Let me quote again from that article from earlier. It says, Freedom is about finding yourself in the steady, unrelenting, knowing, freeing gaze of someone who knows you. You. The you that you despise. And who is glad to be near you. Who loves you anyways. Is anything worth anything? What do you think? Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord God, I thank you that you are the God who sees us, who knows us, who's always watching, that you are the one who brings meaning to a, a life and a world that so often seems so fragmented, so broken, so random, so filled with chaos and pain that it's hard to even get our minds around. And yet you entered the chaos. You joined us here under the sun so that we could stand before you whole, forgiven, renewed, hopeful, even in the midst of the agony that sometimes comes around us. God, I pray that you would give us comfort in the midst of the difficulties. God, I pray that you would give us the, the insight to know when we are running towards your gifts to give us things that only you can give us. While at the same time being able to enjoy with freedom the things that you give. God, help us in this complexity. God, I pray for those who, who, um, who haven't embraced you. God, I pray that you would do your work within them. Even now, God, we believe that you do that that you would draw them to yourself, that you would show them the joy offered to them. Lord Jesus, we trust you and we worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.